Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. We have a really special LP roundtable episode for you this week, featuring Beezer Clarkson from Sapphire Ventures, Chris Duvas at Hoey Capital, and Guy Perlmuter, founder of Grids Capital. It was so nice getting them all in the room together as they've evaluated over a thousand venture funds over the last 20 years and consistently bring some of the best insights in the industry. The emphasis on the show was just to have a fun water cooler type of conversation on various venture topics, including the state of the industry today, opportunity funds, where they fit in, now seed funds can differentiate themselves to LPs. I really hope you enjoy what turned into a free-flowing and fun conversation between us. Now let's get into the episode. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Vouch Insurance, a leading insure tech company started by founders and built for founders. Built specifically for the unique needs of startups and venture firms, Vouch's fully digital coverage takes just minutes to activate, and everything from onboarding to claims is done through a single intuitive interface. Because of their mission of serving founders at every step of the journey, they're trusted by some of the biggest names in the venture world, including Silicon Valley Bank and Y Combinator. Because Vouch is an insurance platform and not a broker, it works with its clients to manage, mitigate, and avoid risk. Check them out at www.vouch.us forward slash venture unlocked. All right, so I'm super excited about bringing the first LP roundtable to Venture Unlocked, where we dive into a number of different topics that relate to venture. And we'll look to dive deep. This will be an unscripted conversation, so we'll let it go where, where it goes. I want to first introduce three of the best LPs in the business, Chris Duvos from Ahoy Capital, Beezer Clarkson from Sapphire Ventures, and Guy Perlmuter from Grids Capital. One of the things we were talking about before this podcast started was how fascinating a time we live in right now. And within venture, it certainly seems a tale of two cities where it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. And we'll get into that during the uh, the scope of this uh, discussion over the next hour or so. But let me first start with an icebreaker for the group here. If you were to complete this sentence, how would you complete it? Venture today is X. Chris, why don't you start? What is X today? To get hype for this uh, this discussion, I watched some TikToks. So I'm like feeling like, yeah, I've been around a long t- enough time that I gotta like, you know, stay current and stay youthful to be relevant in venture. So like, if I had one word based on what I've been hearing from the from the kiddos, it's lit. This market is lit, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, we can go into that, but like, hey, for the moment, we're lit. All right, Gabe, what are you? How are you going to top that? What's your description of the market today? Top Duvos? Never, sir. That's that's <laughs> impossible. I will I will say that for me, the current venture market is extraordinary. By and and I mean it literally, right? I mean it's beyond ordinary. We're now a few standard deviations from everything we've seen before. So and again, as as Chris said, this could be good and could be bad. So for me, in one word, it's extraordinary. That's a great word. Beezer. I think I'm going to go with spicy. Spicy. Oh, caliente. I like it. <laughs> caliente. I like this. I wasn't going to say fuego, but I'll say, I'll say spicy. <laughs> so between spicy, lit, and extraordinary, it's very clear that all of you think this is a very heated market with a ton of momentum. And I would agree with that. And I was looking at the Q1, Q2 numbers and roughly 300 billion dollars went into venture-backed startups. Two-thirds of that, as you can imagine, was late stage. 
And it seems like the venture market has, or at least the capital market for tech companies, has moved into a barbell where on the right side, you have large aircraft carrier type of firms that are investing across stages, have the ability to pump a lot of dollars in at those late stages, let's say Series B and later and Series C and later. And then on the left side of the market, you have a ton of seed funds, which by number are quite high, by dollar amount are still pretty low. I feel like from an LP's perspective, it's harder to navigate than ever before to figure out where can you place capital to get the best risk return. And we've all talked about this. It feels like managers are coming back really quickly. There's not always that much differentiation uh, that matters. And it makes it really tough. And so I'd like to start with maybe Chris on this question. How are you navigating in today's world? I'm old enough to remember, as, as we all are, but I started at, uh, at Princeton's Endowment back in 01. And I remember I became the venture guy because our, our then venture guy left. And, you know, at a Monday meeting, somebody was like, so who wants to do venture? And it was like that nose game where everybody touches their nose and the last person not touching their nose gets to, you know, gets get stuck with whatever task. And that was me. And I became a venture guy. And, and I remember like 2002, 2003, 2004, the, the wreckage and, and, uh, you know, and those were years where like $5 billion, I think in 2003 went into, into startups and like 20 billion. Like I remember Bill Hellman at Greylock was like, what is the like rational size of a venture market? Is it $20 billion a year? And it's like, it's like those numbers seem quaint, but like in fairness, um, the scale of exits has made those numbers seem, you know, reasonably quaint. It's not like this is, you know, this is, um, this is uh, an outrage and people are just spending like drunken sailors. Um, but what I'll say is like, there are a lot of risks that have been taken off the table. And like a main, you know, risk is financing risk, right? And it's because there's so much like plentiful capital out there. And if, you, you know, I, I come from like a classically trained, you know, institutional investor standpoint, you're always thinking about risk adjusted return. Well, how do you adjust return when there's like actually no risk? And, you know, it's been like such a one way market for so long. And I think people have forgotten that actually, you know, the, the trees don't all grow to the sky. And that's something that like for the last maybe year and a half has really influenced my own thinking, which is why maybe to my great detriment, I've doubled down on what I call the grownups in my portfolio. So, you know, we're doubling down on, on firms that, you know, where, where the investors are really, you know, kind of seasoned, you know, maybe, maybe seasoned is a fancy word for geriatric. Um, but, you know, groups where, you know, whether they're established groups that we've backed for a long time, like first round or true or, um, or newer groups like, uh, like Neil and Trey over at Defy that, you know, that have a long, you know, kind of history of investing. But I want people who have, you know, kind of seen what actually happens when risk exists again. Um, because, um, because I think too many people have grown up in, in a world where, you know, the only answer is, you know, buy. And if you can't, you know, if you can't buy yesterday, buy today. I think I went through a bit of like, what's that called? Like the trough of despair. And then there's like the arc of euphoria, whatever those, those like sign curve is. I think right now I'm finding it really, actually really fun, which I know it's a little bit of the like, well, sleep, if you don't need to sleep, it's actually a really fun time to be doing venture because it's, it's unbundling in a way that I love. Like, I think the options now for what, where an entrepreneur can get money is awesome for an entrepreneur. It's a little, you know, it's interesting questions for an LP and where to put your dollars, but there's so many more alternatives now. You can do the classic funds. You can do what Chris is talking about. You can 
we've been trying to keep some dollars available for newer managers and trying some newer methodologies, not just we've done some sort of new but classic kind of structured funds. We're trying to look at are there other alternatives, you know, the rise of the solo GPs, there are syndicate structures, there's some service for equity structures out there. We haven't done a rolling fund, but I find them fascinating. So I, I think right now I actually feel really greedy because I'm like, there's so many different things I'd like to invest in. And it's just a question of no LP has unlimited capital. There has to be the constraint because it's just doesn't, like, nobody has all the money in the world and you wouldn't want to index venture anyway. But I just find a hard time picking from the, because there's so many awesome things I'd like to do. So I, I find it right now a, a fun but challenging market from that respect. Yeah, one thing that that comes to mind when when I look at this market right now, it it reminds me a little bit of what happened in you know 2000 2001 in the hedge fund industry because that was a time where a lot of of prop desk folks were leaving their their jobs at investment banks to start their own hedge funds. And you could see like on a weekly basis there was a new long short equity fund uh, you know sprouting like from nowhere. And it was not really long short per se. If if the manager had like 40 longs and two shorts, he would call himself or herself a long and short fund, right? And, and something that really catches my eye in this environment is the sheer amount of new funds coming to market uh, by people, by quote unquote portfolio managers. And, and again, that's that's fair for people to try their hand at running other people's money. But to get your stripes and to be called a portfolio manager, that's that's a process, right? I feel like this, this title is, is misused a lot. You, we had to have some sort of standard process to make sure that someone can put that in their resume. So right now, the venture environment, and I agree with what both uh, Chris and Beezer said before, the options are are incredible and we're living in a world where you know the opportunity cost to risks to, to Chris point is, is zero right uh, interest rates have been almost zero for you know longer than any one of us have ever experienced and there has been uh, you know paradoxically the the pandemic has accelerated so many trends in the minds of so many different people from different walks of life and and it seems like at this point all all roads point to venture right everybody has their own reason to think of okay i should expand my venture portfolio i should add more chips to this to this uh particular uh uh, uh asset class and and it doesn't feel like it, this is this is going to necessarily end badly and i'm sure we're going to go into that uh, over the course of this conversation but one thing that i think it's inevitable is that some of the uh, GPs out there who have already earned their stripes, I think they're going to be at a premium in this market because inevitably we're going to see failures over time. It just takes a little longer in venture, but they'll be there. And this this GPs, uh, I expect them to continue to do well. Uh, and I think you know there's a, a, a list of uh, probably 20 to 30 names out there that are going to be in great shape uh, in another three to five years. Uh, and, and for those newcomers, uh, I think the environment is going to be increasingly challenging for raising money and for being able to, to, to be in the cap table of really, really interesting deals. And, and by the way, like that's a great point because in venture, all of our train wrecks happen in slow motion, right? 
And, um, and what's actually, you know, has, has always been kind of acute to me is in the public markets, if an idea goes sour, you know, the capital is destroyed and the managers who are, pers- you know, pursuing that strategy get, you know, get kind of lit up and, and exit the business. In venture, like, we're surrounded by melting ice cubes, right? And all it takes is one great deal to get that melted ice cube back in, like, you know, kind of solid ice, you know, condition. I, I was having lunch with a good friend of uh, of mine the other day at the creamery here in Palo Alto, and a GP walked by, and this is somebody who, like, literally had been an incinerator of capital. And this person leaned into me and said, oh my God, can you believe that guy's in company X and they put in like a million dollars and it's now worth like a billion and a half dollars and it's going to like rescue this fund, which has been on life support for years. So in addition to like these funds that like kind of never die, you know, you got, you know, what Beezer talked about is like all these, not only all these new managers, but new modalities of investing. And like for somebody who, like myself, who tries to like do like one new investment a year, it's crazy. It's like we always used to say uh, when I was at Princeton's Endowment, it's harder to get into our portfolio than it is to get in our college. And that, you know, that dilemma has only been, you know, kind of magnified by, you know, an order of magnitude. I sort of look at where the market is today. And I remember starting my career back in 99, actually, and it was like the height of the tech bubble. And remember, I, I forget if it was 99 or 2000, like 100 billion was raised by venture funds. And it was at a time where the public market market cap was like $13 trillion. Venture was still very much a vertical industry on the fringe and technology in in particular, right? We were still internet 1.0, less than 350 million people were online. And you sort of look at the maturation of technology in 06, what happened was AWS came out and it made software development cheaper than ever before. And 07 was the iPhone. And that made not only you had the development cheaper, but now you had the distribution channels. And today, of course, over 5 billion people have uh, smartphones. So part of me thinks this is just a continued evolution of the technology market. And now capital is starting to catch up. The 14-year bull run has certainly helped. But the size and scale of these companies now are at points that we've never seen before, right? If you look at the top Five public companies are all technology companies, total market cap of nine trillion. But look at what their revenues are, look at what their profits are. And then you see some companies, even like a Canva, for example, if you look at their revenues, we would have never seen companies hit those type of revenues. But now you have the distribution and tech being truly horizontal. Now, I do have a question, though, which is related to one side of the barbell, which is late stage, which most of the capital goes into. And again, that's two thirds of the capital. It seems like investing at that stage, the risk levels are more aligned with what we have seen with traditional middle market with maybe a a slightly higher alpha potential given the size and scale of technology companies. But in many ways, it does seem that companies as they achieve scale, even at 10 or $20 billion are still private in nature. And we've seen that on many different occasions with some of the best companies. From my perspective, there's some parallels to investing at that stage as we might have seen maybe 20 years ago in the markets right after a public offering, let's say the 12 to 24 months after in terms of risk return. Do you agree with that? And how should we be thinking about the late stage markets? You know, it's really interesting because about uh 10 or 12 years ago, Josh Koppelman from First Round did a blog post where he looked at 
the market caps uh, at IPO of a bunch of different different kind of tech stalwarts from you know kind of Microsoft through like the early two thousands, like getting Salesforce is in there, Netflix, and and he figured out you know that that of the eventual appreciation in the public markets, ninety seven percent was available to the public investors. Whereas, you know, since then, we've seen, you know, radical shift, you know, into into the late stage, you know, private market. So I think, you know, the, the late stage venture market sh- you know, certainly looks like, um, you know, looks like the the IPO market of old. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, partially is, you know, what it's I mean, I look at my portfolio, my own portfolio of, uh, you know, in my funds, and it looks like the S&P mid cap 400. And, and I think that's really unhealthy for market structure. Um, and I think it's really important for for um, for investors to be able to access emerging growth. Um, but the thing that worries me about um, you know about all that is that you know I always think about Buffett's equation, which is opportunity equals value minus perception. And what happens is the public, the private markets, like really feed on, on on themselves and create these like firestorms almost, where the temperature gets hotter because the fire is burning, which makes the fire burn more, which makes the temperature hotter, and it like it's this big recursive circle. And, um, and there's not as much discipline with respect to price and there's stale prices and all this stuff. And so you get these like crazy valuations. And I think Samir, you alluded to this earlier, you know, we, we've seen some companies really struggle in the public markets. And I think it's because, um, you know, there's so much exuberance in, in the late stage private market that's disconnected from, you know, from Buffett's equation. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's something that worries me. But running an early stage portfolio, I'm actually like kind of delighted because it, it, you know, kind of really minimizes financing risk and gives, you know, the portfolio companies that, that we're backing much more optionality um, and much more survivability and, and, and you know, anti-fragility. Um, so as long as that capital is there, it's great. The problem that I worry about is like what happens when that, you know, when that rug gets pulled out. One comment on that. I just want to read off a, a few things. So percentage of first 20 billion in market cap captured uh, pre-IPO. So Airbnb, first 20 billion, 100%, Snowflake, 100%, Slack, 100%, Twitter, 82.5%, Facebook, 100%, Salesforce, 8%, Amazon, 3.2%, Cisco, 2.4%, and Dell, 1%. So it does go to show how much scale of valuation happens in the private markets. But yeah, I mean, I think your, your point in terms of what happens if the public markets retract what does that mean for all those late stage rounds that are done where you're buying basically at almost a peak and oftentimes even right after the IPO, it drops below what the last private market valuation is. Again, that I think that's a real risk, but Beezer, I know you were going to maybe take a different position perhaps. So one of my colleagues wrote a paper literally like last week on this topic, which is why it's just top of mind about what the, like basically long live the tech IPO and Steve Abbott did it, people want to Google for it. And it looked at this question of how much money gets captured privately versus publicly. And the answer is in a bull market, there is still a lot of room to run in the public market. So just going to shout out, people can read that because it's all very data driven. But it is predicated to the point Chris was making is that, yes, it's worked out well historically if you look over the last 10 years, because even if there was high valuation privately, there was still so much more publicly in the strong companies. But you have to have this bull market to make it happen. Um, which, and if not, we all know what happens. Companies go out, they flounder, either they get recapped or sometimes they get taken private by a private equity tech company and repackaged. So if there's there, there, things can continue. I also just think it's, um, 
there's been a much healthier IPO market in the last 18 months than there's been before if you look at the number of companies that are going out. And I do think from a venture perspective, that is very healthy. I don't think the venture market wasn't predicated on people staying private forever. The, the circle of life of capital flow is critical. No one wants to work at a startup if they're never going to have their options worth anything. Like that's, that's the whole premise of the, of the why you join a startup, right? Um, and the same thing for an LP. The premise is that you invest money into a fund that goes into a company that comes back around so that the dollars can be redistributed again back into venture. So we're, we're positive on the signals that are happening right now. But yes, everyone worries about retraction. And my crystal ball does not have a date for when that's going to happen. I'm very sorry. Maybe Chris is out of the shop and he knows when the market's going to <laughs> my, my crystal ball is still in the shop. I mean, I, I want to get find your repair person because mine's still busted. So, so here's here's something that that I believe we can we can kind of expect, right? Because if if history has shown us anything, is that markets will correct, markets will fluctuate, uh, we will see uh, those prices going up and down. But here's what is unusual about or unique about the environment that we're living in right now. Uh, and I think uh, your point about you know the barbell approach has a lot to do with it. If you think about uh, each round or each series that a privately owned company raises uh, and you stack them on top of each other and you think about the IPO or the listed company as at the very top of that stack, I'm not talking about capital structure. I'm just you know, illustrating the, 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 the path of a specific company, right? Whenever things happen in public markets, uh, and they're there for everybody to see, right? And uh, the the results and the actions and the volatility is is abrupt. It's intense, and it does capture headlines. That's what people are going to read about uh, in the evening news or hear about in the evening news. So what happens is that the shock waves they get from the public markets, and they will start going down the the structure of this stack, right? So they'll hit head-on the late stage, the, the, the mega rounds of still privately owned companies, and it'll go all the way down. But now there's this gap, right, between the late stage and the very early stage. So there's no dampening of this effect. So my concern here is that this eventual correction in the public markets that may or may not have uh, uh, anything to do with the private markets will create ripple, a ripple effect that could uh, make capital scarce, uh, which basically is what fuels this industry, right? Capital, people interested in financing new companies and new ideas and new technologies. Uh, and I think that this is probably one of the most important aspects of this market that we should keep a close eye on because when when the the dampening effect of those intermediary rounds if you will are are not there then uh, that's something quite unique to this specific moment in time uh, and we should be you know on the lookout for for the first signs of trouble yeah and, and it's hard to really understand if there is truly a canary right now in that coal mine that can be actually identified I can't seem to find anything that would suggest there's going to be a near-term retraction in the economic cycle. But historically, you're right. You know, when you see drops in the public markets, it affects capital flow, which then usually starts with the late stage and then goes to the mid stage and then goes to the early stage in terms of capital and, of course, valuation. 
But even if you play in the early stage today, where yes, valuations have gone up, but if you redefine what the outcomes could be, it really doesn't matter too much. At least it's not as sensitive and fragile relative to the late stage markets. A lot of the early stage funds are playing both because they raise a core fund and then they raise an opportunity fund. And I think over the last two years in particular, I've seen more opportunity funds than maybe the 10 years prior to that. The historic LP view on opportunity funds was actually very negative. And I think I've talked to everybody about this. And now it seems to be thawing either as a function of being forced to do it or viewing it as the late stage market where a manager has an asymmetric view into a company could be a really interesting place to get cap, uh, put capital and still get a nice risk return. How has your thinking either stayed the same or modified as it relates to opportunity funds today? You know, this calls to mind my favorite quote from Kaiser Sose, um, which is, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, there was a time, you know, not too long ago when people believed that, you know, kind of modest fund size actually was, uh, you know, was accretive to, to positive returns. And if you raise too much, you know, capital, it was tough to, you know, to compound that capital. And so I think, you know, a lot of funds started raising, you know, a lot of people were, you know, consciously small. And I think that, uh, you know, that then they saw that they had all these, you know, kind of pro rata rights. And so, you know, you'd see this kind of people go through this process of where they, you know, they had a, a modestly sized fund and then they were in hot companies and, and companies are, are, you know, kind of more hot, you know, than, than they normally would be because there's no risk in the economy right now and uh, or risk isn't getting priced, I should say. And so, um, so people start offering SPVs and they're like, oh, too many SPVs. That's a pain in the butt. Let's raise an opportunity fund. And before you know it, your friendly neighborhood, you know, $200 million fund is now raising, you know, $600 million between the two vehicles. And it's like, wait a second, you guys used to say fund size matters and now it doesn't matter. So, you know, I've done my fair share of these because I think the risk adjusted return is actually okay, but it actually, it, it just makes me think that, you know, that people aren't being, you know, kind of terrifically intellectually honest with themselves about keeping their their fund sizes um, small, and I think it's, you know, we're kind of whistling past the graveyard on some of this stuff because what happens when, you know, when you got different securities in the two funds, and if there's a downturn and the securities find themselves in conflict, you know, with each other, and you know somebody's going to get crammed down and somebody isn't, or both people are, and you know somebody's doesn't have capital to, to do a, a pay to play. It's a uh, symptomatic of the world we live in. I think, you know, if, if you're in the full send economy, like if you're going to send it, send it. But this is something that, you know, I think has worked really well to date, but, um, but makes me really nervous um, about the future and hope that we don't step in any holes in the bottom of the airplane. Chris, can you maybe explain just for a second, when you say conflict of a certain security, what does that actually mean for People that don't know what that actually relates to. I remember in like 99 and 00, a lot of funds were raising actually like our, our VCs would raise two funds in a single year. Like a lot of people had two 99 funds um, and sometimes would do crossover investments in those funds. So similar to what you'd see in an opportunity fund and a, and a, and a core fund. Uh, and then when the downturn hit, you might see like you know, fund nine is in the A of a you know security, and fund ten was in the B, and you might have like a like a pay to play where you know if you don't come into the round, you're going to get kicked to common, and fund B might have reserves, and fund A might not, or um, or fund B has some kind of preferences, and fund A doesn't. 
Um, and fund A gets buried behind the preference stack and, and the fund B investors make out and uh, make out well and the fund A investors don't. And that kind of stuff created a lot of drama. You know, I, I call it the great LP wars of 2002, where you'd see like some, you know, some GPs who are today, you know, kind of top five GPs spent like half the year, you know, dealing with like the crankiness of the different constituencies of their LPs. The opportunity fund discussion is, has so many different implications, right? Because there is the the one that Chris was talking about, like what swim lane is a fund in anymore. And there was this beautiful time in venture when everyone had a swim lane and we don't have swim lanes anymore. And I think it'd be lovely if it was that way. And it's just not, and LPs are going to have to deal with it. Like you can't crush people back into the old ways of working. It's just not going to happen. You can assess each opportunity fund for its still return potential to Chris's point about the risk return. And we we treat them all very individually that way. We have return targets for our dollars. And the question is, will this opportunity fund deliver it? Some can, some can't, right? It's each one's its own specific little beautiful snowflake. But the complications of the business exist no matter what, right? Like, is it the same team? Is it a different team? The security questions Chris is raising, we have a fund who has successfully invested in multiple times in the same company in different vehicles. And it's actually the company's doing well, but the question about when you sell is still different for each different fund because they also, if you're, you know, if you're investing at Series D, they might want to hold that for longer. But if you're at the Series A and your fund is smaller and you want to start creating some DPI for your LPs, like who do you sell to? Because they're not the same LPs in these funds anymore. And like the business complication has just gone up so astronomically. And I don't think until you've lived it, to Chris's point, it's as clear to a GP, but to LPs who are looking at the paper, you're like, oh, this is going to be an awesomely difficult question to answer. And there's just, there's not as many of those conversations. I absolutely agree. And actually, this is an interesting segue into something that uh, I have learned over, you know, uh, 20 plus years of allocating capital and investing, which is there's only one thing that LPs hate more than losing money, in my opinion, right? It's surprises. An LP will understand the rules of a game if you explain them in advance and say, this is how this game works. This is how this, uh, this project works. This is how this fund is going to work. But to Beezer's point, uh, after you know four and a half years or five and a half years, you got to start going deep into the weeds to start talking about specifics because of cross investments and different vehicles and different timings and downturns. Those are the, the bombshells. Those are the hits that LPs take and that will ripple throughout the industry because that's when you start getting the domino effect because then there's a credibility issue, then that GP is going to have to spend 95% of, of, of his or her time explaining uh, him, himself or herself to his LPs or to her LPs. So I think that the whole opportunity fund versus individual SPVs versus what is your core competency, those are questions and issues that have to be thoroughly understood prior to writing a check. Because again, Beezer is right. This is not like a hundred meters uh, race, right? That's that's it. I only run a hundred meters. No, no, I hundred hundred meters. But on occasion, I'll do a long jump, and eventually, I can do a four hundred meter race as well. And you can mix it up and do everything as long as you are 
in agreement with your, your client base. Surprises are very, very unwelcome to LPs. That has been my experience time and time again. As you were all talking about opportunity funds, we actually had looked at 25 very successful seed funds that have been around anywhere between five and seven years. Not fund three, four, five. Out of those 25 that we looked at, 22 raised an opportunity fund along with their last fund. And I remember in the past, and this again dates me a little bit, but we used to talk about swim lanes and we used to always say there's different muscles that you have to exercise to be successful at early stage versus late stage. And some of that has been just eschewed by the fact that there is capital chasing these and the pro riders are there. And candidly, a lot of the institutional investors, be it the endowments or foundations, are actually not set up for doing SPVs. And so the Opportunity Fund has offered them an out, no pun intended, an opportunity to place more money behind a seed stage manager than they otherwise would. And so it also fits into a little bit of the demand of the LP market and what they're looking to do per manager. I agree. There's there's a market. And if, if you are a successful seed stage venture capital uh, uh, fund and you're seeing your companies go off the charts time and time again, and you have a limited pro rata and you see a clear opportunity where you can do more and you can bring more of that to your LPs, why wouldn't you do it, right? That That's just markets being efficient and trying to, uh, you know, that the, the, the old uh, adage that says nature abhors the vacuum, right? There's no room for vacuum in this industry. So people are going to fill that in as fast as they possibly can. So I do, I do, I, I'm not against the opportunity funds because I think the, the reason behind them uh, is, is, is very, very in line with the LP's best interests. Um, and it's been my experience that out of a lineup of LPs, maybe 15% will be interested in doing directs, in doing SPVs. Most of them are, okay, I'm paying you to take care of my money. I'm not here to start cherry picking on company A, B, C, or D. That's your job. So don't bring you know, five SPVs per year to, to, to my attention because I don't have the bandwidth, the interest, the, the knowledge to analyze them. So I think it's, it's the market being the market in, in adjusting itself. Beezer, you mentioned something earlier about risk-adjusted returns on opportunity funds and core funds. As you underwrite to the different stages, what are those returns that you're actually underwriting to on a, on a multiple cash-on-cash -cash basis? Sure. Well, historically, and I say it this way because we're in the process of reconsidering this given the performance recently, we said if you're Series A investing, right, if the bulk of your dollars are going at Series A and whatever, however the vehicle is being structured, we're on, we need to see a 3x net potential performance. Like that's our bar. And so seed, therefore, should be greater because there's higher risk. So that's 5x. And this is why the seed funds doing a Series A opportunity fund, it can still work. It gets harder, right, if you're and sometimes this is like a shout out to GPs. If you don't have your opportunity fund, if your opportunity fund is going to outperform your early fund, your math isn't working or your opportunity fund is a lot smaller, which is also fine. And sometimes that is true. But if an LP is doing the math and saying it doesn't stack up, like get ahead of that and make sure you understand your return profile, because we can talk about things that turn off LPs. But if we have to do your return profile math for you, like that's not a positive sign. Um, but what we're seeing in the market right now is because there's been so much strong performance, we see growth funds. We don't tend to do these, but they pitch us and they have 3x net performance, like legit, right, or more, in which case the Series A funds 
we have high single digits. We have double digits. We have seed funds doing double digits. So, and again, in this bull market, it's hard to then say, should this be the new norm for forever? But it's certainly the standard today. So when looking at adding new managers to the program, you have to believe someone's going to outperform pretty incredible existing performance, right? I'm actually like, this is so top of mind for me right now because you know, it's, it's, I, I call the syndrome syndrome. So if anybody remembers the, the Pixar movie, the Incredibles, right? Like um, the bad guy was named syndrome. And he always said like, you know, his, his aim was to keep bring superpowers to everybody because when everybody's incredible, nobody will be. And I feel like they, literally every single fund that comes across my, my transom is like sporting numbers that would in, in different times make me drool, but performance is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And then we don't even need to get into like, okay, who's going to put moolah in the kula? Because, you know, I, I always remember when I was at Princeton at the endowment, we had a big conference table filled with tombstones from, you know, Wall Street, you know, deals, um, whether they were acquisitions or, or IPOs. And all of the, the tombstones on that, um, on that graveyard of broken dreams were companies from which the only distribution we got was that tombstone, right? They literally went public and we got zero because they went, they went to zero. So, so I've always been kind of super sensitized to that. So this is why this is, you know, top of mind. I was just talking to one of my biggest investors and I, you know, he, when, when this guy invested my fund in my first, uh, independent fund in 2012, you know, I told him like, look, our return target is a two and a half, you know, the baseline is a two and a half X net and, you know, and, and hopefully we could get, you know, up into threes net, um, you know, at the fund level. And, um, and today that fund sits, uh, you know, with a lot of public companies and, and some about to go public in the mid threes. And I don't, and that's not, I'm I, like, that's not even a humble brag because I don't even think that's good anymore. Like, I don't even know what's good anymore because I look at other things and I look at, you know, I hear about people putting up five, seven X funds and I'm like, holy smokes, how can I get me some of that? Right. Like, and I feel like, you know, it, it, you know, to, to extend the metaphor of like the Olympics and events, like, I feel like we're all doing, you know, kind of pole vault on the moon, right, where there's no gravity. And like, at some point, gravity is going to kick back in. And I think, you know, there's going to be a, a fine line between who was lucky, and was able to get out of stuff like it's inevitable that the markets will, will come back to earth. It's just a question of when and how and will people have been able to generate enough liquidity in the interim, you know, to kind of sustain these these kinds of returns. I think there's probably something in the middle that's directionally true in the in the sense that yes, there's going to be some gravity at some point. Some of these companies are never going to live up to the valuations that they've been given in the private markets. At the same time, a lot of these funds are investing at a stage of these companies where the exits that do happen that are successful are going to be a step function far bigger than they ever have. And so do we redefine what a successful seed fund is. I mean, I remember a few years ago, we say 3x. If you can get to a 3x, that's great. Most people would say today it's at least a 5x. And I've seen multiple 10x type of funds. Now we'll see if the DPI gets to 10x. But this kind of reminds me of like the 80s and early 90s when you saw a lot of that, when there was very little capital, very few firms. But moving to sort of the emerging bucket for a second, if we are looking at 5, 7, 10x, I find with track records, track records are, can be very, very lacking in indicators. And sometimes there are indicators that are just far too old to matter. Oftentimes you're looking at a track record that's like eight years old when they had this great return. And it's too long ago, too many variables have changed, the team's changed. 
and the track records that are more recent, there just hasn't been enough maturation or any sort of resiliency that portfolio has had to show. So if you're not looking at just track record, which again, has a lot of false positives and negatives, what are the things that you evaluate when you're looking at a manager and saying, is there a potential for this early stage manager to be a five to seven X? What are the, some of those things that are non-obvious? Charlie and the chocolate factory, which is, you know, basically everybody's looking for that golden ticket, right? Uh, in their chocolate bar. And I'm talking Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, not Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka, because all of us, we know that's the legit Willy Wonka. And I think that emerging manager at this point in time, right, the equation is a little bit flipped. And I think that's going to be uh, something that we'll see for a long time, which means there are far more managers out there than talented and really awesome entrepreneurs, meaning that entrepreneurs ultimately, I think, have their pick on who they want to work with specifically at the fringes and specific niches and sectors. But I think we can paint with you know broad strokes this picture. And that means that when you look at a manager, you have to figure out why would this particular manager be able to attract, have enough gravitas to attract extraordinary founders and entrepreneurs and have the audacity to back ideas that are going to be five, eight, 10, 12, pick a number, any number, I don't care. The fact of the matter is that right now, I think that's the key question that one has to ask oneself. What's his or her background? What's the edge they're bringing to the table? We don't need to look at their track record because more often than not, than not there isn't one or there's one that they use at their old firm and now they're starting something new. So, I mean, there's so many variables in there. So I think the core question one has to ask himself or herself is, why would this person be able to attract great talent and build a fantastic portfolio? And that's why I, I use the, the, the golden ticket uh, metaphor, because I think it's a little bit like you can buy all the chocolate bars in the world and you eventually will get to your, to your golden ticket, but you'll run out of money before you do that. So you have to make that golden ticket get to you uh, in the first place. See, I always say we use lottery slogans of Ivy League veneer. Like it's, you know, things like optionality is the same as saying, hey, you never know. You got to be in it to win it is the same as asymmetric payoff, right? Like, you know, we've, we've, um, you know, we've co-opted some of the stuff. It's like, you know, some days I think I'm not an investor. I'm just heading down to the bodega to buy a couple of lotto tickets along with my Diet Coke. It's really interesting because I, one thing I think a lot about is I don't know how you underwrite to, you know, kind of. 10x returns because the portfolio math on that is such that you have to underwrite to one outcome that's just so extraordinary that um, that you can't underwrite to it. And I think about you know kind of I remember when first round invested with Uber, I was spending a lot of time hanging out with Rob Hayes, and and you know nobody knew that that was going to become Uber. You know, in that same fund they had Roblox, which ended up actually distributing more to first round than than Uber did. And Roblox was like the 10-year, you know, overnight success story. Like you just didn't know who knew that that was going to be like the, you know, the company that it is today, you know, distributing, you know, literally billions of dollars to that fund. Um, and so, uh, so what, I, you know, what I kind of underwrite to is I want 
you know, managers that show, you know, can demonstrate sustainable competitive advantage, which drives repeatability. And I've got some, you know, kind of shorthands for what I think about that in terms of, you know, people who are leveraging specific ecosystems and that manifests in, you know, in a couple of different ways. Um, and I feel like that kind of thinking can get me to like a 3x. But the, you know, the gap between 3x and 10x is filled by just being really effing lucky. Another thing I've been really curious about is just the common mistakes that managers make that over time atrophy returns. One of the obvious things for me is when managers move out of the swim lane too quickly, too suddenly, and whatever comparative advantage they had dissipates because they're playing a completely different game. And an example would be somebody that's raised a $10 million fund, writing small frictionless checks, non-lead, and then all of a sudden jump into 75 and being forced to really lead every single round. And those things can come at the expense of returns. Are there any common mistakes that you see or red flags that you think come at, at the expense of returns? When you're in a meeting and sort of like the magic happens, there's all sorts of like structural things to Chris's point, like they have a team and they have a vision for a market and there's all this stuff that everybody has, but there's something about an investor who's playing in a space and it's, it's just so true to how they think. And they, the, you know, the stupid phrases they can see around corners. But the reality is that's the experience you have sometimes with an LP. When someone's talking about something, you're like, I have now understood D to C, crypto, enterprise software. You, you pick it in a different way because this investor is thinking about it in a different way or is able to sort of capture something about the, their investing scheme that other people just are sort of, I sort of more like paycheck venture capitalist, this sounds derogatory and I don't mean it that way, but people kind of go to work to be a VC versus someone who's like, no, I'm compelled to do this because this is like what's going to be true in the world and I have to be there. And they can be emerging managers, they can be established. There's just something about their presence and they don't have to be an extrovert or charismatic. They can be super quiet about it. But when you're in the presence of one of those folks, be it brand new or established, it's just as different. And it doesn't mean to say they're not going to make some mistakes in investing because Venture is a risk business, and that's fine. We sign up for that. But that's just really different. And I think when people don't have that, it's and you have too many people that just want to write a check, you can kind of feel that too, and it just feels very middling. Or if someone's super special because they work really well, to your point, Samir, at seed, and all of a sudden they're doing growth or growth at seed, and somehow their magic intuition, some people can stretch both ways. It's hard. Not everybody can, and that can just sort of diffuse it. And then you're also competing with a different set of folks. It's it's a really different game, and people have different tactics and understand different things about companies. Is there anything from a behavioral characteristic standpoint that you can point to that's actually tangible? Because what we're talking about here is you feel something, right? You're across something, which, by the way, I think the risks that all LPs have, including all of us, is we form biases about what somebody should feel like because we've seen certain type of people be successful and, and we've sat across those people. What are some, some of the tangible things from a behavior or the way somebody thinks that is actually a good sort of heuristic or at least a heuristic that you all use? Is it hustle? Is it hungry? Is it is there self-awareness? Like, what is it that you're looking for? This is a flummoxing topic for me because um, a lot of the stuff that I've in my career been kind of trained uh, is, you know, is like really important actually hasn't been in the last few years. And one is, you know, portfolio construction. If you look at, you know, the, the great funds of like a lot of different eras, 
um, you know, when they've been successful, they've owned a lot of their big winners. They've been thoughtful. They've been disciplined. All these, all these things that we think of as asset management. And you know, Beezer and I are in a fund together where we literally like, you know, kind of ye- we're yelling at this you know GP across the table because he was you know kind of just spraying and praying, and he you know his response to us was like, you got to understand, this isn't. Uh, you know, 1999, it's 1996. And the more investments we make, the the better, because the rising tide is going to lift all boats. And I said, well, you don't know what the tide is going to be like at some undetermined time, you know, in the future. And of course, you know, and, and so I'd sit here and I'd be like, oh, those guys really suck at portfolio construction. And, you know, here they've got a big public company that's going to return you know, somewhere between four and six X their fund on its own, right? Like that's one that historically has been really important to me. People are thoughtful about the craft of investing as opposed to like, um, you know, just, just throwing money around. Um, and a second one, which actually, you know, I struggle with a lot. And this, you know, this is like the Swenson training in me is like alignment of interest is really important, right? And it can be financial, but more important, it's, it's you know, psychic. And, you know, you can tell when somebody's like really all in. And I think what we've seen in the last like, you know, five, four or five years is like the dilettantification of venture capital. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people who are just like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start a rolling fund and I'll do this for like, you know, six months and then be on to the next thing. And, you know, I remember Swenson used to talk about like, you want a manager like lashed to the mast where like, you know, it, 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 it's not that they own a free option, but rather that, you know, they need this to do well, you know, for them to, to be fulfilled both financially and, and psychically. And we just see a lot of, you know, a lot of people just, just kind of, you know, spraying and praying and we as ELPs are short their optionality. And that's actually a super uncomfortable situation. But at the same time, a lot of those people have actually been successful. And some of the people who run, you know, what I'd call lifestyle funds have crushed it. And so I sit here and go like, maybe everything I know is wrong. Oh, I worry about, yes, we always worry that everything we've been trained on is wrong because you do get these, you know, to Chris's point, you get one company that does so well and you're like, oh, well, guess none of that other stuff mattered. And that's the glory of venture. Trying to really think some, you're like, what is it? Because it's, I do agree with you. I think one of the challenges that has kept LPs from, from taking, there's a lot of reasons why LPs don't invest in new, net new managers to their funds. But one of them is there's sort of, there are a lot of classic trainings on what a venture capitalist looks like down to like demographics. And that's really stifled the industry. It's just wrong. <laughs> there is no one who's, there's no one person who's genetically better at being an investor. If that was true, would know it, right? And it'd be seen throughout history. It's just more about who's been given opportunities. So I think when we listen to people when they talk, I'm not sure if it's quantifiable, but we ask a lot of questions because we want to understand their strategy. Like, how are they going after what they're going after? What is the opportunity set that they're seeing? How are they understanding the businesses they're going after? And for some people, it's very quantifiable. And some people, it's about margins. For some people, it's about consumer behavior. So the metric that's being used isn't as relevant as the fact that they're using something to help drive their decisions and they can explain it. And if they can't explain it, there has to be some other way of presenting it. Somebody literally asked me this question today. They're like, how important is communication to being a great investor? And I was like, I think it's probably really critical because if you can't explain what you're doing to somebody else, it's going to be really hard to fundraise. I mean, in the beginning, you're going to have to have capital from somewhere. And if you don't have your own capital, you can do it yourself until your track record grows and people will invest in you even if you never say a word. But if otherwise, you have to be able to articulate in some form, maybe it's a TikTok video, maybe it's an Excel spreadsheet. 
I, I guess my point is we ask a lot of questions and try to take in a lot of different data to understand who these people are and where they're going to invest. So you can see what see where they see and where the puck's going and where we fall off with a lot of people is to Chris's point, a lot of people haven't thought through it that much. It looks fun. You can start with nothing these days, which is awesome. And it does help create more entry, entry rounds for folks to come in. But it doesn't mean they've thought through the whole entire business of where they're going and what they're doing. And if you want to raise institutional capital, the bar does get set somewhere around there, right? It's not just, hey, I want to invest. Well, everybody does. So it has to be more than that. As you were all talking, it reminded me of a question from Twitter that I that I saw, and it really spoke to thinking about how do you differentiate? So all of us have seen hundreds, if not thousands of decks, and they all follow a similar pattern around team and what's your asymmetric differentiation, your value add. And over time, people become a little bit immune to decks themselves and the stories because everything looks the same. And the the question was really centered around if you don't come from a place that has unique points that LPs look like, or at least the points that LPs tend to weight heavily, i.e. coming from a big firm like NEA, living within certain Silicon Valley circles for a long time, having built a network, how do you actually stand out from the crowd when you may not have any of those things? How do you all think about that? And are there things that managers that aren't part of the the mainstream Silicon Valley circles and haven't been for a long time can do to really stand out with LPs that are institutional? Well, I think one of the one of the key aspects of investing, you, you asked before, you know, for concrete, uh, palpable pointers uh, to be able to answer those kinds of questions. And the fact of the matter is that investment uh, is, you know, a blend of art and science, right? There's a technical aspect to it where you run the numbers, you look at the correlations, you try to do your, your back testing, you try to do four things. I mean, there's all of that stuff, it's fine, but there's a lot to, to Beezer's point of, of communication skills, of being able to kind of get into the other person's head to make sure they can articulate an idea or a thesis that makes sense to you, that fits with your view of the world. So for me, uh, one of the things that we you know, consistently do is we look for whatever is inevitable, right? What trends are being uh, now accelerated and that are inevitable? And when there's a manager, to your, your question, Samir, that is able to articulate the inevitability, why it's inevitable, how they are able to explore that particular trend, and why they are in a unique or in a privileged position to be able to do that. That's something for you to start paying attention and and picking that particular deck and say, okay, that's a conversation I want to have. It doesn't mean you're going to follow through, but that's, I think, a great start. It's when someone is competent enough, they have clarity of thought, they have a, 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 a reasoning that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's not just trying to, you know, take some buzzwords from from whatever and trying to pitch, you know, phenomenal numbers because guess what? Now phenomenal numbers are the norm, right? That's now became that became almost jaded at this point with with the numbers. You want to see something that is sustainable because this is not something you can get rid of. 
in another month or two. You're stuck with that position for a decade or so. So you have to be very, very confident on your you know, evaluation process, on your analysis, and on that uh, specific thesis that is being presented to you. You made a point there that I, I think is really important about track record because everyone has track record. And I actually sent a tweet that if your fund isn't at least three years old, no one gives a shit about your track record over the last three years. It really doesn't matter. It's immaterial. There's too much gamification that can happen. But if somebody is approaching you, what should they lead with if it's not track record? Because a lot of the people that are coming out to market don't have a track record that's more than three or four years. Yeah, one thing I think a lot about is, um, you know, I, I've been doing emerging managers since 2004. And notwithstanding, um, you know, what we've seen in the last you know year, the vast majority of these have been the vast, vast majority of these have been completely unfulfilling, um, you know, in terms of, of returns. You know, and everybody's got their different heuristics uh, for you know what might work. You know, f- for me, it really comes back to like this: this, um, you know, what is your unfair advantage, and, and how can you articulate your own repeatability? You know, this is uh, actually Andy Weissman at, at USV. You know, really kind of hammered into me the, you know, we're not investors there, but I've, you know, the time I spend with him, he's always talking about repeatability and and process driving repeatability. Um, and for me, one of the things, and, and I tell this to all the managers that approach me. I'm looking for people who are leveraging ecosystems. So like, what are you, you know, part of, I've been doing a lot of university investing of late. And so I love people who are, you know, really leveraging, you know, innovation on campus, um, you know, particularly in hard tech. Um, are you leveraging some sort of community like Ross Fabini, a manager of ours, um, you know, kind of has a couple of communities that he's, um, he's very, you know, kind of embedded in and, and see some stuff through there or, you know, kind of non-traditional managers. Do you have some sort of, um, you know, kind of position of authenticity in some sort of, uh, you know, kind of new and emerging area that, that has a lot of a lot of upside? And how do you maintain that, um, you know, that authenticity? One fund that we didn't do, which I I regret, uh, although I haven't seen the numbers, but I'm sure they're they're crushing it, is somebody like Cross Culture. Um, you know, I thought I think I thought they had an extremely nice, you know, kind of footprint and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of upside, um, you know, potential there. So, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of, you know, my watchword, because, you know, looking at each thing and saying, like, huh, you know, what, what, what are the 4000 managers out there, Samir, I I don't even have time to meet with 400 of them, Um, you know, which is why I almost use this, like, you know, what is your leverageable um, ecosystem? Um, You know, that's my first screen. Don't know if we have something as specific as that. Maybe we should. (laughs) I think you're smarter than I am. So, you know, I don't. We don't meet with 4,000, but we do. One of the processes that we have used is when we start getting interested in the space, we do try to meet with as many as possible. And it's certainly easier if the space is easy. Like, see generalist is not the great way to do that. But we, for example, when we started looking at a certain category in enterprise or in big data or in consumer, we might meet with a range of investors or funds to try to get a sense for what's existing. And then you also then hear different voices. Either And again, it can be in the established manager. This isn't just an emerging managers, but it's easier, at least for me as an investor, to understand what's going on. Um, COVID makes it really difficult to do that geographically. But to Chris's point in LA, if you can go walk the streets and see what's going on while people are talking about their investing, that's we love to do that too. We've done that very extensively in Europe and Israel to understand ecosystems. And then when you bump into somebody who just bring something different to the game, even if it isn't obvious from the outside when they talk about something, it can land because you're like, oh, I see I see your world that you're playing in. 
and I see who you're playing with and this lands for us. But it is, it's really time intensive. We consider ourselves venture specialists, but it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. You can't just meet with one fund a year and do that. So I feel like we can, I mean, we've only covered a small subsection of the topics that we could probably cover, especially within the emerging manager ecosystem. We haven't gotten into nano funds or solo GPs and really the shift in that. And I, I do feel like we need a part two for that because there's so much meat on that bone. But I, I do want to end in the interest of time with maybe a question on where there might be opportunities. We've talked about established managers. We've talked about growth funds. We've talked about series A, seed. You know, I just alluded to nano funds and seed funds. Going around the table here, what is one area that you feel currently has the best risk-adjusted rated return of all of those things that I just mentioned? I've had a, a several year long, years long, um, you know, kind of deep tech hypothesis going. Part of that is, uh, is um, I'm really nervous about weaponized balance sheets, and there's actually still financing risk in, in deep tech. You know, maybe there's capital intensity, but but I think that keeps the you know the, co- the companies honest. Um, and again, back to Buffett's equation: opportunity equals value minus perception. Right? Like the perception of so many things is so high that I think it it, it kind of constrains the opportunity. And I think there's a lot of good value to be had um, in deep tech. But but the reality is a lot. You know, deep tech has gotten mainstream a lot faster than than I imagined it would. So maybe you know maybe that's. Uh, you know, that's constrain, going to constrain my hypothesis, but that's probably the, the area where I'm most, um, you know, most focused. And, and one articulation of that is a lot of the college uh, 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 related funds I'm doing, like House Fund at Berkeley, E14 at MIT, um, Free Flow down at uh, Caltech, Rhapsody that does a bunch of material science stuff across a bunch of, of campuses and, and, and other research institutions. So that's, that's a lot of fun. So I never thought I'd hear the day where the guy that told me LP should invest courageously would say he's scared. <laughs> but I think that, you know, it is a unique time. And, you know, certainly deep tech is highly interesting for a lot of us. And Guy, I know this is core to your investment thesis. Let's let's move over to you and, and tell us a little bit about what you're most excited about. So one thing that really there's this quote that comes to my mind, you know, on a regular basis, which is. Uh, there's, and, and I think Chris is going to love it because it's a maritime quote, so I think it's right up his alley. It says, uh, there's no favorable wind for those who don't know where they're going to, right? And I think that's that's on us as investors, right? You have to have a plan. You have to chart your course and say, this is where I'm going, because otherwise, how do you even know that something is of interest, right? And and to your point, Samir, we, we basically started Grids, you know, as a... A niche shop, deep tech only. That's the only thing we do. And hence, uh, within that world of deep tech, and, and I fully agree with Chris, uh, I think it has become uh, relatively mainstream very quickly. And again, I think COVID has a lot, uh, uh, plays a big part on that uh, trend. Uh, but I think that within deep tech, uh, you know, there are a few, and again, inevitabilities that we are clearly seeing now with climate tech, right, after the disaster of, of the 2000s where, where climate tech was basically solar and that ended in a bloodbath. But right now, there's so much stuff going on in climate tech. Uh, the uh, supply chain optimizations, uh, the, uh, the whole food tech revolution, because we're going to be 10 billion people in 2050. There will be no more, there's no more real estate for us to do 
more crops. We'll have to come up with inventive, innovative solutions. Uh, there is synthetic bio, which again, I think now everybody is pretty, pretty familiarized with. So these are areas where I think there are huge air, uh, aerospace in general, space and, and so on and so forth. So in deep tech, there are those clusters of opportunity that are, you know, almost like new, brand new markets that thanks to the history of technology are now available for private investors to kind of dip their toes on the water. And, and I continuously, you know, I've been excited about this particular market ever since I did my first angel check back in, uh, you know, late 2000. And I still feel that there's there's a lot of room for that uh, trend to uh, to unravel. So so yeah, I absolutely am with Chris on that one. I think deep tech is going to be a, a phenomenal run for for the next few decades if you know where to look and who to choose. So we got two deep tech, and I'm, I'm not surprised. And it's something that you know I've spoken to a lot of both GPs and LPs about, and I do think it to your points both it has become mainstream, but it's still very early stage in many different applications. So I'm excited about that. So last, but definitely not least, Beezer, where are you excited? I mean, you're, let's go to the smartest person in the room here. Oh, I hope this answer doesn't disappoint you. I was thinking more generally, we're looking for the best early stage investors. We launched our business around, it, it, I don't have a specific area because one of the things that I've just discovered is I can't, I can't say I only want to do X in advance. Like it doesn't work for me. I have to go meet the people and we, have a portfolio where we're just looking for great seed and a series A investors, and it can come in any shape and form. And there certainly are times when we find a trend that we're really interested in. We've been spending a bunch of time in fintech recently, but that doesn't mean we're only going to do fintech in the future. It just means we're trying to understand it right now. We have been spending a bunch of time with nano funds and some of these other structures to understand it. We may or may not do anything. We just solve for the best early stage investors in whatever form they come in. And that's... I still think it's an incredibly exciting space and, and all of the innovations that are happening are awesome. And I, yeah, I just think there's a ton going on and think it'll, I think it's a great place to play. I love where we invest. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up nano funds because I was going to say that's an area that I'm extremely excited about. And uh, the nano funds where, you know, somebody has something really programmatic on how they go about their business having an incredible amount of self-awareness of what swim lane they should be in. And when they factor in things like network effects, I mean, the returns have been through the roof. And I, I, I know many that are just starting that I have a lot of excitement about. And so I hope more people do nano funds. I think right now it's still family offices and individuals. I know there's a couple of funds that are now starting to do it, but that's that's my answer. I mean, this has been such a fun jam session. I know it's Friday late and we don't have a glass of wine. Next time we'll do part two with a glass of wine. But thanks, everybody, uh, for being on the show here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our first LP roundtable with Gabe, Beezer, and Chris. To get detailed notes on this show, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com and also find my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.